0: This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast.
1: We are your study buddies for neonatology topics.
0: I'm Dr. Ben Korsha.
1: And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbeau.
0: Welcome. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review. It is Thursday. Daphna, how are you?
1: Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you?
0: I'm exhausted. I'm at this yeah. point. People don't understand, but this is. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was this thinking, is the last what did I do today? We're... What did I do today? i We recorded all day.
0: <laughs> we recorded all day. All day. <laughs> we had division meeting. We met with the conference people. So it's it's just a lot. I'm post call. <laughs> I feel like.
1: You need a nap. You need
0: a nap. I definitely need a nap. But anyway, Uh, It's Thursday. It's it's Ask the Expert Day. This is going to be fun. Um, So today, um, we decided to invite on the show uh, Dr. Noor Kassira, who is a uh, pediatric general and uh, thoracic surgeon. She's the surgical director of the NICU and the PICU at Jody Maggio Children's Hospital. She's somebody that we uh, worked with, both Daphne and I, in the past. And she's excellent. I mean, yeah, that's the reason why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the reason that's why, why she's invite. here. That's <laughs> why she's here. Um, uh, she um, we've she she, she has this ability to um, uh, she's she's a, just a very calm and collected surgeon and has the mm-hmm. ability to explain things very well. And we thought that she might do a tremendous job in sort of helping us navigate these complex issues of gastroschisis and um and emphyseal. Um, she um. She sent us her bio, and and just uh, briefly, she she grew up uh, down here in South Florida. She did, uh, she got her uh, medical degree, and and went on to uh, to um, oh, I'm losing my words, and she went on to uh, to do a a, surg- a residency in general surgery at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital, and she did her pediatric surgery fellowship at the Saint Christopher's Hospital for Children in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, she's phenomenal. I think you'll enjoy uh, what she has to tell us. And uh, yeah, without further ado, please join us in welcoming to the show Dr. Nora Kassira. Dr. Nora Kassira, thank you so much for being on the show with us uh, this morning. My pleasure. All right, Daphna, you want to get us started today?
1: Sure, sure. All right. Well, um, like we told you, we've been discussing abdominal wall defects um, all week, and we've been kind of doing it from the neonatology perspective, but obviously there, there's a need for multidisciplinary management. So as a surgeon, um, what are some of the challenges um, that you think about in managing babies with um, abdominal wall defects? We've been focusing on gastroschisis and emphalosia.
2: Um, well I think I think we have to take them as as two separate things, you know, because there are differences in managing them. Um when you talk about gastroschisis, um, and also from phalacyls, so you have to deal with with the other issues besides the gut, right? Um so are there prematurity issues, are there other anomalies associated with them? So if we talk about gastroschisis, you have to remember um, uh, many of these babies are born premature, they are IUGR. Um, and then, you know, can you have infections with indwelling lines, with, you know, babies who are intubated long-term, things like that. Um, but when we talk about then gastroschisis itself, um, we have to decide when the babies are born, how we're going to manage them surgically. So options are, you know, placement of a silo. Um, and again, these are done. The first step is always something that's done emergently. Um, and then, is intubation needed? Um, many times, as long as the baby doesn't need other respiratory support, um, we can get away with placing a silo without uh, requirement for intubation. So that's something that's beneficial if we can avoid that in these babies. Um, after the silo's placed, then we have to decide, you know, do they go to the OR after reduction for a sutured closure, or we have sutureless closure that we can do. Um, and then the other options are, if you don't do a silo initially, can you do a sutureless closure from the get-go? Um, and again, that doesn't require intubation many times. And then there are some that will do a primary OR closure. Um, so they feel like they can get everything in and they actually close the fas- fascia with sutures. Um, so that does require intubation, but the hope is after that maybe you can you know extubate those babies soon after. Um, and then we talk about you know the, the gut issues um, that we'll have to deal with post-operatively. Um, and we'll get into that, I think, a little bit later. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about the complex issues. But then you talk about Um, You know, gastroschisis typically just has gut anomalies associated with it. Not many other anomalies, but um definitely has associated cardiac anomalies, renal anomalies, genetic anomalies. So association with trisomies as well. Um, and then just depending on the size of the omphalocele, pulmonary hypoplasia can be a big issue. Um, with these babies, especially with a giant Um So they can have a prolonged hospital course, and all the potential complications, you know, that that come along with it. Um, and then the, you know, the smaller seals uh, many times we are able to close primarily within a couple days of birth, as long as you know, a cardiac issue doesn't preclude that or other issues going on. Um, but when you have the giant emphaloceles, those are, you know, a long-term management um, issue. Um, and they'll be in the NICU probably for a couple of months um, until we can get them to that point where they're ready
1: to go home.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what's, oh, go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: No, you go first.
0: No, I was going to say, you know, we like to, to uh, protocolize things in neonatology. Mm-hmm. And I think we sort of, as, as intensivists, we often see these babies as, as the pathology that they present. And so what's interesting to us is to find out a little bit as to when a baby with gastroschisis or a baby with an omphalocele presents, what are some of the signs that you as a surgeon are looking for and are identifying as potential um, inkling that this might be a complicated case or maybe a smoother case? What are some of the things that we should be uh, on the lookout for when a baby is born with an abdominal wall defect?
2: No, that's that's a great question because, you know, having a straightforward gastroschisis is something very different than a, a complex one. So um, with gastroschisis, there is an um, a complex gastroschisis type. And what does that mean? So usually those babies either have atresias, perforation, necrosis, or volvulus, um, and that makes them a complex gastroschisis. Um, so if at birth we notice any necrosis or perforation, those need to be addressed immediately. Um, and then, you know, we can either resect bowel, we can, you know, put them together potentially, but many times we don't do that initially um, from the get-go um, and we'll leave them in a silo and have to watch them closely. You know, eventually our goal in all these babies is to, to maintain the bowel length, um, you know, so they can have hopefully a normal life. Um, but sometimes it's difficult if you have, you know, issues with necrosis, perforation, um, you know, focal perforations that are tiny that we may notice maybe. To suture those clothes um, as a definite possibility, um, but many times those babies do end up in a silo, so we can see how the bowel evolves. Um, and again, they may end up. You know, when we talk about preserving bowel length, you know, for eight, we end up losing a lot of bowel. They end up with short gut potentially, and that's a whole nother issue in and of itself. Um, you know, complicated that adds to um, potential problems. You know, with with the liver and things like that, um, prolonged TPN, potential infections. Um, When we deal with atresias, um, with gastroschisis, so many times what we, you know, the bowel is always very matted. It can be very demitous, you know, from the exposure to the amniotic fluids. We don't necessarily see the atresias in the bowel itself. Um, So these babies, many times we follow our usual protocol, whether, you know, it's to to close them primarily or do a silo, then close them. Um, And then we notice that like four weeks, five weeks, we're not able to get bowel function back. And then at that point, we have to be suspicious for an atresia. Um, so if we're not able to get the babies to feed, eventually, you know, they will need a re-exploration to look for atresias. Um, and again, our goal is going to be to, uh, try to maintain bowel length. Um, and many times at that point, when we're that far out, we can resect bowel and and re anastomose them. And hopefully that potentially would be the last surgery that they need. Um, and then, you know, when we talk about volvulus, so, you know, can happen at at two different times in these, you know, babies courses. So sometimes we have them in a silo. Um, and, um, you can imagine that the mesentery is, is pretty fragile, um, on these babies. So, you know, another reason when they're born, we have them put on the side. So the mesentery isn't twisted or turned. Um, but when we're in the silo, we have to make sure that we have the mesentery straight. Um, sometimes it can be twisted inadvertently, um, and then you'll start to see the bowel color change. So that's something I know that we've initiated in our NICU where the nurses every hour have to check on the bowel and make sure that the color is Okay. Um, because you can have the volvulus or twisting of the mesentery within the silo, and that needs to be corrected immediately. Then the other time it can happen, you know, we talk about malrotation and, and gastroschisis and omphalocele are always malrotated. Um, so in the future, there is always a possibility um, of them having volvulus as well. Hmm. Um,
0: so what's, what's the deal with the, you're talking about the matting, right? Which is that shiny the shiny appearance of the gut because of its exposure to the amniotic fluid uh, during pregnancy. Um, and, so, and so that's, that's bad, right?
2: <laughs> Correct. <It's> just, <laughs> it, makes it, it makes it difficult for us to tell what's what sometimes, you know. Um, there are times when you see just a huge mat, matted bike ball of bowel, and right. you can't tell what it is, but you never want. And that's because it's
0: edematous. That, like the it, the exposure to the amniotic fluid makes correct. the bowel edematous, so it swells, and it may exactly look, and it may look nice and pink, and in truth, it's just swollen and
2: yes, exactly. Wet. And it may actually be okay. You know, we had one um, not too long ago in our NICU, and it was you couldn't tell that it was truly bowel. It was one big ball of matted, inflamed tissue, and what we did eventually was take the the baby and just return all of that into the abdomen and went back about four to six weeks later. And it was amazing where you could actually see true bowel loops. So um, exactly. So you never want to prematurely, you know, resect it, say, Oh, I don't know what this is. And, and take it. Cause again, our goal in these babies is to maintain their bowel length um, and, and get coverage on whatever it is that they have. Um, so, you know, that's the, you know, the gastroschisis babies, again, the atresias, the necrosis, the perforation, um, uh, as well as the volvulus, those make it complex. So, you know, when you're dealing with these babies, they may require multiple surgeries. Um, you know, if they end up with short gut, you know, we talk about the vanishing or the closing gastroschisis. That's another um, type of gastroschisis that you truly never want to see, but unfortunately it does happen. Um, and sometimes you know, you know, that these babies are out there prenatally because you may notice uh, intra-abdominal bowel dilation. Um uh, on the prenatal ultrasounds, and sometimes those babies, you may want to deliver a little bit more early um, if you think that's what's going on. Um, what happens is is the the abdominal wall defect closes on uh, the bowel and the mesentery, and whatever's typically on the outside, many times um, becomes ischemic and, and necrosis and infarcts, and it may just shrink away. Um, and these babies can end up with short gut because they lose a lot of their mid gut, unfortunately. Um, so again, in the end, preserve maximal bowel length. Um, and try to avoid short gut, you know, is, is our concern with these babies. Um, so that's a gastroschisis. Um, we can, you know, talk about omphalocele too, just real briefly. So, um, you know, you have this, the small ones, um, and those are typically a couple centimeters in size. Um, and, you know, an omphalocele, unless it is ruptured, is never an emergency to take care of, unlike gastroschisis where the bowel is exposed. Um, and what we want to do is definitely rule out other um, uh, other medical issues. So, you know, any is there major cardiac anomalies, other trisomies, renal anomalies, things like that. Um, once we ensure that the baby's safe for the OR with we'll the smaller umbilical so those definitely less than five centimeters, um, and when we've looked at them that we feel like we can close them safely uh, without increasing, um, you know, their abdominal pressure, uh, then those can go to the OR and we can close them, and they actually turn out pretty nicely. Um, Many of those babies don't typically have, um, you know, difficulty with feeding. You know, the last one we had, um, it was about, you know, two, three centimeter defect. It was closed on on day of life um, two and went home, you know, within a week or so. Uh, The baby was full term um, and otherwise had no major issues. But when you talk about the large defects, whole nother story. And those those are typically greater than five centimeters. um, And the liver can be out in many of them. Uh, and those many times, um, they can have pulmonary hypoplasia. Um, you can have, uh, variations of, of, uh, the giant emphalloceles. So if they tend to be epigastric, uh, um, those can be a pentalgia cantrell. So that brings in a whole, a whole new slew of issues, right? So sternal defects, pericardial defects, you can have ectopia cordis with those, diaphragm defects, and then, um, you know, the issue, with the, the emphallocele. Um, and then, you know, if it's lower down, if it's hypogastric, then that brings in, you know, the OEIS complex, um, and, and both of these, you know, are variations, um, with them is just based on the location, but the associated defects with them create a whole another slew of issues. Um, so, you know, the giant umphalocele, if we're dealing with that, uh, you know, t- typically the treatment is many times a pain and weight technique, um, which again, when we, you don't want to try to reduce the contents because there's no space, there's no abdominal domain to do that. So it's not feasible. If you try to do it, you, the main thing that happens, you get kinking of the hepatic veins, uh, and, and the baby will code, it will have no, you know, uh, return to the right heart. So, you know, pain and weight works very well, um, where typically we start with Um, at our facility, we start with, um, just doing like bass to into the area. And about two weeks, once we make sure there's no risk of cornictris or anything, we transition to silvadene, which works very nicely to epithelialize the tissue. Um, other options are betadine. Um, you have to monitor for hypothyroidism in that case. Um, and then eventually the goal is epithelialization. And once all the other medical issues are okay and it's epithelialized at that point, they'd be able to go home.
1: We did discuss that. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Thank you. So, I have a question. Actually, you mentioned a little bit about our monitoring of these babies, and I like to always inquire when we have subspecialists that are not neonatologists um, about our collaboration, our communication as a team. So, when you, when we call you in the middle of the night and we say we've got a new gastroesophagus, we got a new emphyseal, um, so I have two scenarios. What, like, what do you want to hear on this brand new baby? And then um, the other scenario is yeah. um, when we call and we say, you know, the, the bowel doesn't look so good. Like it's being a little, you know, yucky with our real um, clinical terms. Um, you know, what are the things you really want us to say on the other end of the phone?
2: Yeah. So when you call us for these babies, so we try to make it a point to know when a gastroschisis baby is delivering sure. or an emphalosal baby is delivering um, because... You know, we want to be there as soon as they're delivered. Make sure they're stable. They get evaluated by Neo, and then they go to the NICU. Um, And uh, you know, we want to be able to get that bowel covered as soon as possible. But first, you know, we like to for you to get IV access on the babies, give them a fluid bolus, place a repogal to suction, uh, get the stomach decompressed, um, start antibiotics, and then you know we take over. Um, But you know what we want to you know we want to basically know right away because with the gastroschisis, again, we have to deal with them um, pretty immediately, but those are the things we need. The IV access, the fluid bolus, the repogal, make sure the baby's lying on the side and that the bowel is covered appropriately. Um, with the, the seals, um again, we like to know when they're delivering just so we have you know a heads up, but as long as they're not ruptured, there's nothing emergent to do about them. Um, And you know, just based on the size, we have to decide on the management uh, of those babies. So um, either we see it in person, versus you know we you're able to put a picture in the chart. You know, we can see that and decide. You know, the initial management. Um, you know, uh, and then we go from there. Start with the bass tracing and then usually at around two weeks, we can go to the the Um, And then, in terms of if there's concern about the bowel in a silo, mm-hmm. we want to know immediately. And then, that's,
0: that's, you yeah. that's a um, terrifying for, part for yes, us is, is yes. trying to to compare the, the to look in there. Yeah, the, the, yeah. It feels like you feel like you're, uh, you know, in home decoration, you're comparing the and, colors from prior. Right. <laughs> like, no, no,
2: for sure. And, you know, the lighting makes a big difference. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, when I, I put on a silo, I take a look at it always with and without the light. Cause it, it makes a huge difference, I'll tell you. Um and then just so I know how it looks, uh, but if there is ever an issue or a concern, then the surgeon needs to come in and take a look at the bowel. Because the price you pay for missing something like that is potentially having ischemia and necrosis to the bowel. Um and that, you know, you can have a simple gastroschisis that becomes a complex one right now, unfortunately. Um I've seen it happen, you know. Um in the past I've put on a silo and, and, you know, we thought everything was okay, but the the bowel started turning dusky and it it turns out the mesentery was a little bit turned. Um, So those are all important things and you want to catch them as early as possible to avoid any of those potential complications.
1: You also mentioned what we can get ready for you. And actually, I did not talk about this in our postnatal management discussion, Um, but what about pain control? How can us being ready and have that baby managed from a pain perspective, help the baby, but also optimize your job?
2: Uh, yeah, so t- typically, you know, having, um, you know, fentanyl. So we're talking about, you know, pre-procedure. Um, so for the gastroschisis, for the silo procedures, you know, having a little fentanyl on board, um, and maybe just a touch of Versed, you know, we want to avoid if we can just do the silo alone. Um, we don't want the baby to be moving too much, but we don't want the baby to have, um, you know, respiratory suppression to the point where they require intubation. So it's just a balance, you know, start slow. If you need a little more, you can give a little bit more, um, with the seals, if they're intact, it shouldn't be a painful thing. Um, and you know, if they're small seals, we don't typically, you know, do any kind of reduction. We'll do that in the OR, you know, push the bowel back in and, and it shouldn't be an issue. And then with the giant ones. know, we're just doing paint and weight technique on that. Um, And then for the silos, you know, we always have a PRN fentanyl um, available um, when we come in and do the reductions um, to be available for the baby as well. And then, you know, then the typical, you know, post-op, if we close them um, in the OR, they likely will have more pain um, from the fascial closure. you know, just inherent in, in closing fascia, you're going to have pain. So, again, you know, fentanyl, you can also do rectal tylenol. Um, that always helps as well. Um, for the ones where we do a sutureless closure, um, those tend to have less pain um, because the fascia is actually staying open. And basically, many times they develop, you know, an umbilical hernia that can close with time. And if it doesn't close by the time they're age five, then so be it. We fix it at that time. Um, but they don't tend to have that you know, tighter closure with a fascia, so they tend to have less pain.
0: Um, th- thank you very much. My, my last question for you is, is when things do go well and, and these babies get re- repaired and everything went smoothly, there's no complication. Um, I'm curious as to what does the course look like for these babies once they leave the NICU? Do they struggle with any GI disturbances? Is there things that the parents should still be on the lookout for? Uh, can you tell us a little bit in, in ideal scenarios, what are the things that parents and, and those babies have to look out for after discharge?
2: Definitely, definitely a good question. And, and these babies, we always have follow up with us. You know, obviously, you know, gynum fallow seals are going to follow very closely with us. The ones that we end up closing, um, is, is a different story, but we do follow them and, and there are things we tell them to look out for. So um, if we talk about gastroschisis, you know, we've closed up the belly, um, you know, an adhesive bowel obstruction is always a possibility anytime um, during their lifetime. Uh, so that's something we tell them to look out for, um, you know, if they have abdominal distension. Um, Those are all things that that need looking into. Again, it's sometimes hard to figure things out because many times as kids grow up, right, they get GI bugs and things like that. That's going to be the more common thing. Um, But something that's persistent, they're really concerned about, um, you know, we always tell them come into the ER to be evaluated for that. Um, I recently, probably within the past couple of months, operated on a 12-year-old who had a gastroschisis repair as a baby. Uh, it was a simple gastroschisis and she came down, came to the ER with a pretty bad bowel obstruction. This was the first operation since that closure that she's had. Um, so, so I did an x lap on her and, and licensed, uh several adhesions and relieved her bowel obstruction. So that's something they have to know. And then, you know, something that has to be passed on to them as they become adults, because it's always a possibility. Um, and, you know, same thing for, for the giant and seals too, that eventually get closed. Uh, it's always a possibility of having an adhesive bowel obstruction. Um, The smaller in it's a possibility, but much, much less likely. um, Because when we go in there and we close the fascia, we're not doing a lot of manipulation of the bowel or anything like that. We typically don't necessarily eviscerate the bowel. um, So less likely for that to occur. Mm -hmm. Then we talk about, you know, both these conditions along with CDHs. So those are the big three that are inherently malrotated because of, of the condition um so they have to know about the risk of volvulus um so you know bilious emesis uh severe abdominal pain things like that we warn them about and tell them it's an emergency to come in and get evaluated for that although we know the risk of uh volvulus uh later on in life with these babies is pretty low um i've actually never seen um either one of them volvulize. i think some people say it's one two three percent risk Um, It's something that's important for them to know about because when it happens, you know, the outcome can be pretty bad or even deadly. Uh, So that's, you know, something they need to know about. Um, The other thing with gastroschisis that we talked about is their bowel, because of its exposure to the amniotic fluid, um, sometimes can have some dysmotility. It may not function like 100% normal bowel. Um, Some of these babies have, you know, some dilated segments that remain dilated. Um, and it kind of acts like a pseudo obstruction. You know, there's nothing truly, you know, blocking them, but it just doesn't function well with peristalsis. So some of these later on in life um, may require tapering of the bowel if it's super dilated just to get it to function better. Um, and then. Mean, what does that mean, tapering of the bowel? So basically, we typically use stapling devices and we narrow that bowel. So mm. um, make it more like the caliber of the normal bowel. Um, the fact that it's so big, um, it just doesn't have that good peristalsis. And when we taper it, it tends to work a little bit better and it doesn't have as much stasis within it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, those are the things, you know, the gastroschesis that we talk about. Um, you know, the one other thing with the giant and seals, seals, um, some of these babies, because they're in the NICU for a while, you know, feeding issues, um, you know, can be a, a problem with them. Um, so some of these babies do go home with uh, uh, ng tubes to feed. It's difficult in the beginnings of of taking care of these babies to to put a, a g tube in um, just because of of them fallacy and the epithelialization and no real good fascia sometimes so um you know ng feeds is is a thing. some of these babies have uh, reflux um, and it can be difficult to medically manage in some of these babies and Somewhere down the line, they may, may eventually need a Nissen or they may go home with, a, you know, an ND tube um, just to, to bypass the stomach to be able to get them to feed and grow. So, you know, failure to thrive could be an issue, uh, growth issues with those babies. Um, and then the other thing, you know, you talk about if, if babies need uh, continued uh, general anesthetics, lots of procedures, you're in the NICU for a lot, you know, neurodevelopmental issues um, can always be something you need to look out for and they may need follow up for as well.
0: That was fascinating. I mean, it's so interesting how basically the omphalocele, if they're not giant omphalocele, from a from a GI standpoint, it's not the worse. It's not worse than a gastroschisis, but it's all the other associated anomalies that. Correct.
2: That yes. It's, <laughs> yeah, um, when we talk about you know the, the two defects, we're like, if you had to pick one that you would get, uh, yeah, you know, right? which one's worse? And and we always say omphalocele because of the associated defects. Many times, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. the jo- Yeah. Go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say just because purely from the from the intestinal standpoint, it seems like umbilical is much much smoother ride. Um, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes,
2: sometimes we're surprised, you know. And when you when you get to the ruptured umbilical, that's mm. a whole different course, you know. And again, mm. if you have that pentalogy, you or the OEIS, sure. um, you know, complex. It's it's much more complicated, yeah, yeah, unfortunately. A lot of issues to deal with.
0: Um, I don't have any additional questions. This, this was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much for making the My time and, and being so thorough. I think this is very, very helpful because um, fortunately, we don't see these cases every day. And so it's nice to have that as a reminder as to what to, uh, to anticipate, what to tell parents. So um, I thought this was tremendously valuable. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time.
2: My pleasure. Anytime.
0: All right, definitely. I'll see you tomorrow.
2: Have a good one.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to NICUpodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.